All right, welcome back, everyone, for another edition of The Final Mile, where we answer your questions, and we appreciate your continued listenership and sending us your questions. Without you guys, we would not have a show, so we appreciate it. Uh, make sure to continue to share us with your friends in the industry. Leave that review. Um, check out our entire library on our website for all of our content at Freight360.net. And uh, make sure to check out the Freight Broker Basics course if you want to learn more about our training, full course on how to start a brokerage, get customers, grow that carrier network, and hire the right employees. And please, to support this channel, please support the sponsors listed in the description box. And without further ado, uh, we'll get into it. Ben, our first question comes from Amir. He says, how do you onboard a 1099 agent? What documents are needed? What are signs to look for for good or bad agents? And should they use your company name when posting on load boards? So this is there's a lot. It's a good one. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack here. I'll 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 take point on it and then I'll let you kind of uh hop in because you've I mean you've done everything from um W2 to 1099 and kind of a variety of stuff in between. So all right, what documents are needed? Um I'm gonna give you my recommendations that I don't I don't know the the legal answer here, um, but you should have a, an independent contractor agreement. So an agent agreement that outlines the 1099 relationship between broker and agent. Um, what can agent do? What can broker do? What can they not do? Um, for example, some uh, some agreements will have an exclusivity clause in there that states if you're an agent for us, you can't be an agent for a direct competitor of ours as well. Um, some will tell you that we can provide you with X, Y, and Z for software, but we cannot provide you with marketing material, business cards, stuff like that. Um, definitely, I recommend getting with both an attorney and a tax pro when it comes to a 1099 relationship because the IRS does draw a pretty like firm line with those relationships. Um, if you listen to our episode from last third or last Friday, Beth Carroll was on and she called it, was it the arm arm's length? Uh, yeah. Arm's length transaction. Yeah. It's yeah. supposed to be an arm's length transaction. That's pretty common. Phrasing. Um, so signs to look for, for good and bad agents. Well, I've been in the agent space for quite a while and I'll tell you stuff that I look for. Um, Perfect agent, someone who's got experience. They've got a customer base of loyal customers, great communicator. They share the same values and work ethic that you do. Someone that you could trust, right? Those are like your basic um, good signs. Bad signs, they don't know what they're talking about when they talk about freight, right? They So it's hard to vet out an agent if you don't see them in person and spend time. But I'll, oftentimes I'll just ask somebody like, well, you know, tell me about your... Uh, Tell me about your book of business. And they're like, uh, you know, do some stuff with uh, trucks and, you know, and they're like, basically they can't explain what their job is, which tells me they don't really truly have the experience um, or it's too limited. Right. I talked to somebody uh, earlier this year that, you know, did a lot of work in customer carrier sales and then moved over to, to a, a customer facing role and he spent five years at like a big, like I'm assuming it's a top 10 company. I won't name them. Um, but then we're talking more and he's like, yeah, you know, I was just, uh, you know, I was assigned those accounts. I've never actually had to go out and prospect my own. And I'm like, oh boy. So 
okay, like if you have a book to bring over, that's great. And then we talked more and we come to realize that, well, he really can't bring those accounts with him because of a non solicit agreement. So he's really relying on prospecting new business, but he's never actually done it before. Not a good fit, right? Um, I run backgrounds on people. You want to look for uh, typically like the white collar crimes. There, there's an ongoing joke in our industry that um, the best brokers have a DWI. So I usually, not, I usually don't <laughs> judge someone's background check if they have a, a DWI. Um, I've seen some crazy stuff on backgrounds though. Had a, uh, a guy that um, we've had a murderer, um, had people that had like, uh, like basically money laundering rings going on. I had a guy that was charged with, uh, child pornography. Like, like just basically wow. if there's something on this report that you wouldn't want them around your family, probably don't want them to be part of your work family. So to your uh, earlier point, I would say I worked in two offices where the top three brokers all had DWIs yeah. <laughs> in two different instances. Yep, absolutely. Um, and on to the end of his question, should they use your company name when posting on load boards? I, I would say absolutely, right? You want it to be very clear that this person is a um, a member of your organization. It's when... If someone's an agent or a W-2, when they're representing your company to a driver or a trucking company or a customer, it shouldn't make a difference if they're W-2 or 1099. They're representing whatever logistics company you are. That's what it comes down to. So that's that's my opinion on it. Um, it's tough. It's really tough to find really solid, good agents that have a compelling reason to come join your team. So it's a slow build if you're going to do the agent model and bring folks on. The majority of people that I have talked to and kind of given guidance on when they're thinking about bringing on their first agent, it usually doesn't work because they just have never done it before and they don't know what to look for. They just think, ooh, shiny object, quick, free, or not free, but quick, easy revenue and profit for my company. And then you find out you're, uh, you become a glorified babysitter for um, grown adults and you know they're not responsive to you and they promised – X amount of business and it never actually comes over. And now you've got these expenses and yada, yada, yada. But it's a good question. Um, yeah. I, the, the contract, that, background check, make sure they have, make sure they're legit. Basically. The thing that I would add is like, what are you really interviewing for? And what I mean by that is think about what are the risks to your business of bringing on an agent? Because those are the things you're trying to prevent with the conversation to understand, right? And the risks are, to what you just pointed out, Nate, is they're going to be operating under your business. So they are representing your organization to the market, right? So the risk there is that they don't operate ethically, that they commit fraud, that they do things that literally create wire fraud and instances where they're creating loads that don't exist. They're creating fraudulent BOLs. They're getting invoices for things that didn't happen, right? Those are egregious examples that can happen under an agent model, right? I've seen just about all that happen. Exactly. And I was going to say, but the primary risk, again, if you get the ethics and the legal side out of it, which you pointed out, background check will help with some of them and your questions about their character are going to help to some degree. But the number one reason why people don't succeed in the agent model is they are now their own business. And yeah, that sounds great, but nobody ever thinks through the other side of that is, are you going to do what you said you were going to do when there's nobody looking over your shoulder 
or making sure you, you do, don't have right? a boss anymore. You have no boss. And that sounds great in principle, but in practice, that means, hey, how are you at managing your own time? How are you at managing your own tasks and your own effort level? Can you be regimented to do this consistently? Because the number one reason I think they don't succeed is two things. They don't make enough calls. They don't say the right things or follow up enough in those calls. Those are the two fundamental reasons why I think most people don't succeed building their own freight brokerage or as an agent, because they're pretty similar, right? And as an agent, you've got less things to do. If you're building your own brokerage, you've got a lot more on your plate than that. And if you can't hold yourself accountable to making the same calls consistently every day, emails, outreach, follow-ups over a long period of time, that's where you're going to fail. And to your point, you really want to ask questions that are open-ended. Closed-ended questions can be answered with a yes or no. Can you prospect new business? Yes. Okay, check. Well, that didn't tell you anything, right? Hey, can you bring in new customers? Yes, I can do that. Okay, great. No, ask it in a way like you did that makes them explain, right? Think essay question in college or in high school, right? Hey, how have you acquired some customers in the past? Tell me how you have done this. Can you give me an example of where you have prospected in any industry, whether it's freight or anything else, for a long period of time and how that went for you? Can you give me an example of where you have made this volume of outreach, right? Because it takes a different skill set, I would say, for lack of a better definition, for somebody that can do this day in and day out, because you're getting rejected over and over and over and over again, right? And somebody that has never done this has a very high failure rate because 95, I was TQL's numbers were out because of the lawsuit last week, like 95% of their people that they hire don't even make it into sales, right? So again, a company that it's hires thousands of people and has been around 20 years that pay people just to interview for this position, get it right less than 5% of the time. Yep. So if you're going to try this your first time, expect you're probably not going to do better than a company that has been doing it for 20 years can do it because it's very hard to interview for this. If to your point, they aren't coming with this already, right? I've got a book. I don't want to work here anymore. There's these issues. I would like a better home to be able to bring my customers to. Pretty clear cut example. Yep. The other example, I've been an account rep, doesn't tell me whether or not you've actually can find a lead and can you hunt it and can you bring it and drag it back into the company? Different jobs. Agreed. I, I like to ask people like, to tell me the story of how they got into the business and then also what made them what made them decide to consider a different company right you can kind of they're not yes or no questions they're like hey explain to me x y and z and don't feel don't feel like you have to just take it on face value ask them why ask them to tell you more ask them if it doesn't pass the sniff test or if it smells like bs ask another question right don't just take what somebody's saying that you just met for face value, right? Yep. All right. Next question comes from Benjamin. Good name. My brother and I own a pallet business. We're considering adding freight brokering at some point. Interested in exploring options, whether getting our own authority, working as an agent first to learn the industry, or using our S-Corp as a front business connected to a brokering company, giving them a percentage for use of their back office and support. Is that something... That's possible. I'm not sure I even understand what that third option was. Um, I would say keep it simple, but you have to learn the industry somehow. So I would say either um, get your own authority or the agent model are both viable options. I wouldn't try to do some sneaky backdoor 
S corp connected thing that they said, but so whether it's a pallet business or anything else, I'll give you examples of what I've seen work. Okay. Trucking company, right? Small trucking company wants to open up brokerage. They have two routes, the same as Benjamin does here. They can go get their own authority and start a brokerage that way. And they're going to do everything and retain all the profits and pay all the bills. Or they can do the agency route and establish an agency with a established freight brokerage. And now they can do both um, under their roof. It's a preference thing. It doesn't really make a difference how you do it. Do you want to be the accountant or do you want to take less profit and basically have the, if you're an agent, have the brokerage company do the accounting stuff for you. Um, Also, I mean, on the agent talk in general, if you're going to be an agent for a company, what do you have the ability to decide for yourself versus what is the company telling you, you know, hey, you can only use carriers that meet X, Y, and Z criteria, or we only give credit to customers who have X credit rating through a credit website. Um, You'll have more autonomy if you get your own authority but you also have really nobody to lean on who's got experience and expertise like you would as an agent. Um, You might want to just go shadow a brokerage or get some kind of training, take the freight broker basics course, right? We'll teach you how to do all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, what's your take on it? I I don't know what, what it means to be a pallet business. They build pallets and ship them, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, that's the piece. I mean, I'm assuming that's what the power business is. I, I, I think, again, to go in the agent model, if you don't know the industry, like you pointed it out, right? The agent model isn't meant to really educate you. It's meant to provide back office support for somebody that knows how to do the business, right? Yeah. Like you've got to know how to find carriers, know how to find shippers, how to do the job of being a broker. I don't think an agent model is going to solve that. Um, some, I mean, I think so, yeah, I'm sure. a company's not restricted to not being able, cause I've seen companies that will like, they'll take newbies and train them and then place them as an agent. Yeah. Um, and I think be a high turnover there, but it's not yeah. that you're limited to that. You just, it's not as common. Yeah. Yeah. I, or to be honest, I, I mean, the people I've seen succeed doing this, I mean, they're clients of ours actually. And I mean, I didn't intend to do a plug for us, but like I've had clients that have come through our course to learn it and at least understand it and then work with us to do this as they work their other business until they learn it. And then one of them goes full speed at it and the other one stays with the other business. So, I mean, we could do that with somebody like this between our course and coaching, or I think even if it isn't our system, if you went with somebody else that could help mentor you through it, because there's a lot of risk to doing this, especially if you're going to attach it to an existing business, whether they're in the same entity or not, right? Like the prevalence of fraud, understanding how to avoid this. I mean, there are real risks in our business that really weren't around three or four years ago that I would not do this without someone's guidance, because you might think you're moving in a direction that sounds great. And now all of a sudden you got a claim, you don't have the right insurance, and you might end up in a worse position than you started with. And to me, that's a bigger risk than taking your time to doing it with somebody that can help you do this the right way. Like to me, I've always, in every business I've ever started, like I've gone through and spent more time understanding it before I've jumped in. And not everybody has to do it that way. That's just my personal preference. Because I think there's just a lot to lose now. And, you know, five or six years ago, I don't think it was necessarily the case. But you could get 
a lot of issues with double brokering and fraud by not understanding how to vet carriers, what you're doing, not having the right coverage for things. And we're just seeing it more and more this year than we saw it last year. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think it's going away anytime soon. And to me, that risk, you only mitigate it through experience or working with somebody that has enough experience to help you with it. So if you are going to start your own authority, I would find somebody that can help guide you through it. For sure. Um, Next question from Seth Twinder. I live in Canada. Can I use a broker license to move freight within the U.S.? Or am I restricted to moving freight only within Canada, Canada to U.S. and U.S. to Canada? So basically they're saying, can I move domestic U.S. freight or does it have to involve Canada at some point? Um, So here's what we don't know is what kind of license they have. So here's something that I didn't, I didn't know until recently. The... Canadian freight brokers are so freight brokerage in Canada is completely unregulated except for in Ontario and Quebec. And those two provinces specifically issue licenses for Canadian brokerage authorities from their province. So like if I live in Toronto, Ontario, and I want to be a Canadian freight broker, I have to go to the province of Ontario's transportation department that issues licenses for brokering and get through them. Same with Quebec. If you live anywhere else in Canada and you're moving Canadian freight within Canada on Canadian uh, trucks, totally unregulated. You just do whatever you want. It's, it's like the wild west. So. If Which you is are, it the two Ontario and what's the other one? Quebec. Okay. Yep. Yeah, man, it's wild. So like Montreal, uh, Ottawa, Quebec city. Those are all, uh, I thought there was something related to their drainage industry or something where it was like very regulated, like even to the rates in some portions of Canada, but I am absolutely. No, dude, Canada's wild west. It's insane. So anyway, if you live in the, uh, you can get a U.S. brokerage license, whether you live in Canada or not, and you can be a freight broker that moves stuff in the U.S. Absolutely. Yes. I've, worked with people in the past that lived outside of Toronto and their company um, became a freight brokerage, right? And you could do it as an agent. We've been talking about agents, right? You can just contract with a U.S. based brokerage um, or you just start a, uh, a U.S. based LLC and apply for your authority. So yeah, absolutely. Do they need um, somebody in the U S I'm sorry. Like, What's that? Do they also need somebody in the United States to get the license since they're in Canada? Is that how no, that works? There's a ton of companies that you can use that will set up a U.S.-based LLC for you with a U.S. bank, okay. a P.O. box. Um, think about the amount of companies that are, or you know, industries that have people living in foreign countries that are they do yeah. work with, the, with with American, you know, in the United States. Um, there's a different tax form. Instead of a W-9, you have a W-8-B-E-N, which is uh, American-owned dollars that are non um, – like for, for a non-American, basically. So if you're an yep. agent, you would fill out a W-8 instead of a W-9. Uh, but, you, yeah, your company can register as a foreign entity. Or you can, you, you can create a U.S.-based company and, and broker in the U.S. Um, <clears throat> next question. This measurement 127 asks, what annual fees do brokers have to pay? Well, once you get your authority, that application fee is one time. There is the 
the UCR, the Unified Carrier Registration, which is for all brokers and carriers to pay annually. As of uh, 2023, it's only 41 bucks a year for brokers. Um, trucking companies pay it based off their fleet size. So you're going to have the UCR every year. You're going to have your, if you have a bond instead of a freight broker trust, you're going to pay your um, your annual bond premium, which will range, you know, might be 1500 bucks, three grand, depends on your credit and what your um, history is with the bond company. Um, that would be, I'm thinking like bare bones minimum. I think that's your only, oh, if you use a process agent company, they might have an ongoing annual fee. Um, and then there's like the non-required things like subscriptions yes. for a TMS and your load boards and your email and your phone and your internet and all that stuff. But bare bone minimum, there really is not a hefty cost outside of your, your bond. So yeah, man, the UCR, that one, that one blows my mind. Um, we did a video on it uh, earlier this year, I think just go to our website and search UCR in the, in the search bar. You'll find a blog video um, all on that. And uh, it breaks it down. It's it's essentially well. I got to pull it up here. Let me read it off. How this is how I described it. In simple terms, the UCR is a revenue generating program for the 41 states that participate. As of 2023, comma sort of like a tax on brokers and carriers. It's they just created like this whole registration thing and said, hey, you got to pay every year to do this. And um, yes. The money is essentially used to help fund state enforcement of uh, safety regulations. So just a tax. But yeah, good question. Our last question comes from LucidGuy1930, who asks, does it matter which state I get my authority in? I mean, outside of... uh, Quick answer is no. But the complicated answer could be there's different tax laws in different states right so if you if you create a company in a tax-friendly state it could be more beneficial right i mean you probably know more about tax-friendly states than i do and how that all works maybe maybe yeah but i don't even know that you need your authority in the same state your company is based to be honest well first of all let's make it clear the authority is not granted by the state it's granted by the fmcsa but if i'm putting my address in it yes. really doesn't matter if it says you're in New York or Illinois. Correct. But depending on the tax, like if you create a, a company or a business entity in a certain state, there are that different matters. states that have different um, Delaware is the famous one. Things. Delaware is the famous one because they have the most lenient um, laws related to like corporate tax. So like most major companies are incorporated in the state of Delaware for that reason. But from a practical standpoint, most people just pick the state they live in. Um, but if you wanted to go deeper, talk to your accountant or talk to an attorney. I mean, the two obvious ones are state taxes in Florida don't exist on the income side or in Texas are the two big ones. And most businesses will move to either state for that reason, because your authority, again, is granted by the federal government, which is all of the states. It doesn't care which state you're in, which state you form your legal entity that owns it is the one that matters from a tax standpoint. And again, speak to your accountant, but those are the three big ones. (laughs) Fair enough. And I actually, 
I just did a little research on the uh, U.S. citizen thing, and I'm getting conflicting information now. So I can guarantee you that you can, this is back to our earlier question, I, I can guarantee you that you can contract with a brokerage as a, as a uh, agency, as a foreigner. But now I'm looking and it says, because um, I, I wanted to double check myself on it. It says, well, it says getting a U.S. citizenship or obtaining a green card will tremendously lower your bond cost. And then it says you need only to be a valid U.S. resident. I don't know. Back to our question. I don't I don't know. If, do you know? I'm trying to think. Do you have any uh, knowledge of anyone that's a, not a U.S. citizen that is set up a freight brokerage? No, everyone I know. That's why I asked you, because everyone I know has somebody in the United States. That's what it is. I, I've had. Well, so you can be an agent for sure and not yeah, be an agent. And, yes. But I have seen people that will you they'll register it under like a family member that's in the States. Correct. So, yes. There we go. I've seen the silent business partners that are in the United States that are registered through that. Um, and then they still operate offshore with everything that you already discussed. I don't know of any just anecdotally like that I've run into that are don't have the person in the U.S. that's at least formed the entity. Gotcha. Um, well, I'm going to have to let's see. Freight. I'm going to we're going to have to do some research and you get a better answer. But it says. Um, U.S. citizenship is not a requirement. This is according to a bond website. Well, I guess I'd have to go through the uh, registration portal, um, which I have not done in a very long time, and see if there's a, a requirement on there. But who knows? Anyway, uh, the fun the fun note there is that um, the well, like he said he lived in Canada. We don't know if he's a Canadian citizen yeah. or a U.S. citizen. So who knows? But more to fall on that question. Um, cool. Well, Hey, good questions. Keep sending them in. And again, please support the sponsors to, uh, um, help out this channel. And Ben, you got any final thoughts? Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go bills.